Welcome to the podcast Rise and Play. I am Sophie Vaux, your podcast host. I bring together leaders, entrepreneurs, fund makers, investors, and educators who are here to make a change in the industry. For a brighter and healthier future of the games we will make, and how we will make them. We're here to start a conversation because listening and asking the hard questions is sometimes enough to inspire change in us, to take the leap to. Let's begin. So today I am super excited to have Mishka, the one and only Mishka with me on my podcast. So for the ones who don't know about Mishka, uh, I will still introduce him and Mikhail Mishka Katkov is a CEO and founder of Savage Game Studios and founder of Deconstructor of Fun. Before starting his own company, Mishka has been building free-to-play games and leading kick-ass game teams at some of the most prominent publishers in the industry, such as Rovio, Zynga, FunPlus, and Supercell. So hi, Mishka. Very delighted to have you today. How are you? I'm good, and thanks for having me on your podcast, and I'm super happy to be on your podcast, and I'm super happy that you have your own podcast. So, um, yeah, <laughs> feeling good. It's really sunny here in, in Helsinki, as you can see from the uh, from the video. And, um, yeah, you know, thanks for the intro. <laughs> yeah. Well, as for the listener who couldn't listen or a little private conversation before we started, I thought of also mm -hmm. starting uh, this conversation today a bit differently as well, getting right in the questions that also I have in my mind about, you know, I started the podcast as well, where I have to do a bit of soul searching of why would I invest some time to do it? Why do I care? What do I want to do? And um, I wanted to ask you as well with Deconstructor often where it is today in the podcast you started, mm -hmm. um, why... Uh, And how did you start, you know, Deconstructor of Fun, like sharing a bit of the history of that? And, you know, why do you wake up every day still investing some time and are growing still uh, bigger today? Yeah, yeah. So thanks. That's, a, that's an interesting question. Um, I started Deconstructor of Fun, it might be now nine or 10 years ago. So it's a very, very long time ago. And uh, it's, a, it's, it's an accident why I started it. It's, it's kind of like I had a girlfriend and she was talking a lot about doing a fashion blog or something like that. And I was like, all right. And through that, I even found out what a blog is. Uh, back then, it was on a blogger. So shout out to that platform. Anyways, and I don't remember like what what were the... Uh, oh, actually, I do remember. I was working at Rovio and I was doing these uh, weekly meetings with the CEO and 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 the, uh, the C-suite kind of like talking about the industry, talking about the market, and they wanted to to get some insights in the games that were going that you know that were popping and some of the mechanics and so forth as well as look into our own portfolio. So I always kind of presented the games uh, some of the games that were interesting and give gave a little deconstructions to them and they appreciated it a lot and then I was like well I just might as well you know put these deconstructions on a blog and I started putting them and it was it was also for me it was it was mainly for me because I wanted to have my notes in one place and that the notes were proper because I did notes before that and they were kind of shitty. And when you make your notes public, they're automatically better and they make you think a little bit more, even if it's like one person reading them. So <clears throat> I decided to start putting these notes publicly. And then, uh, then there were like back, like my first big post was about CSR. So mm -hmm. CSR racing, when the first one launched, there was a lot of conversation about this game and I was kind of hearing everywhere and, And kind of like everybody was having their own opinion and it was making a lot of money back then. And I wrote about that game 
and it blew up. Like it became very, very viral. I don't really remember the numbers. And that kind of gave me extra motivation because that was the first post that went viral. And my previous post, you know, started getting traction as well. And I remember like after that, I think some time passed and did a couple of more posts. I did a Clash of Clans post and I kid you not, I think it got like first year it had like half a million readers. Like it was, it was insane. So, so I found this kind of like this viral lane and, and, um, and since then I've been on and off publishing on the blog and the blog has definitely evolved, uh, as I've, um, you know, matured in life and, and have, have matured in my career, have found, you know, moved from just product role to a studio role to a CEO role. So the content kept on changing. It's not focused that much on game mechanics anymore. Uh, the second thing that has influenced the blog significantly is, of course, you know, I had family, I have kids. So I've, I've definitely, that was the biggest growth driver for the blog because I couldn't do it myself anymore. I was kind of, you know, in my mind competing against Telfer's blog, against Anil's blog, like back in the day. And the, uh, it was both guns blazing and there was like mobile free to play. And then kind of like the, the switch happened in my head. Like, why am I competing for content? Like, what are we, a CNN or like, like nobody, we're just blogs. So I kind of invited them as well to, to join the, uh, the platform and they did it. And then we kind of, you know, formed Deconstructor together. And now there are more and more people like you're on the podcast constantly talking about, you know, the leadership stuff. And I'm happy to, I, I was just happy to open up that platform for anybody to come in and share knowledge about the industry and get their own traction, open up their own podcasts, open up their own websites, promote their own services and kind of use that as a as a launching launching pad if you will. So so that's basically the evolution. And why I do podcasts is because a I love talking to people. I'm a chatty cat as you can hear. <laughs> uh, secondly, b it's a great learning experience. I can have almost anybody, I would argue pretty much anybody on the podcast to talk about uh, you know, whatever the topic is. And that's, that's exhilarating. I love, you know, getting top mm -hmm. professionals talk about the, the topics that I don't know anything about. And I can have like almost like a private session of learning and, um, and see, it's very time effective. It doesn't take long to sit down in your home or in a, in a, in your studio, wherever you are, put a microphone in front of you and have a, an uninterrupted conversation. So, so that's how, uh, the podcasting really started. Amazing, an amazing journey as well. It's really big now, the Constructor of Fun, and a key reference, I would say, for anyone working in games. So it's amazing what you have achieved also with a, the group of, a, I would say, the partners you have found. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly. It's, that's the most important part. It's not me. It's, it's mm -hmm. with others. Yeah, a platform. I think this is a key word here. And uh, would you really be willing to share as well uh, what is your reach today from where you started, how long, you know, the whole growth journey? Yeah, so I, I don't look at the numbers that much because I find like anybody who's a content creator knows that numbers are stressful because they don't go linearly mm -hmm. up. Yeah. They go down as well. Mm -hmm. And I don't want to be stressing about it. And yes, I do admit that sometimes I do stress about these things. And I'm like, why is it going down? And then I, I always go back to my mission of this. Like, why am I doing this? Why did I start this? It wasn't to get more reach. It was to produce great content. It was to, to have this platform for my notes. So why do you care about the numbers? But I do look at the numbers since nowadays we have a lot of sponsors and they want to see their numbers. So with the blog, I think... I think like with uh, we almost do like one post uh, a month, which is not a lot. It's not really not a lot. That's about like forty thousand mm -hmm. uh, readers a month. So uh, so pretty good with with the limited content. But we always 
focus on very reusable content. Not everything is super reusable, but most of it. Like if we just did a deconstruction of Everdale, Supercell's uh, latest hit, and I think that's gathering a lot of reads because it's uh, it's quite reusable. Like you can go through it multiple times. You can read it a year from now and kind of understand what happened. You can read it five years from now if it launches or if it doesn't launch to kind of understand what happened with that game. So, so that's the blog. Uh, with a podcast, it's anywhere between 2,000 to 6,000 uh, listens per episode, really depending on the content. And as, as we were having this discussions in the beginning, what you're doing is the most difficult form of podcasting, which is having guests and then talking to those guests in a, in a form of interview, because most of your guests, and uh, I'll do a, I'll, I'll actually argue that I'm, I'm the guest that has recorded the most podcasts on your podcast. So I can have a very free conversation, but most of my guests and most of your guests are sometimes doing their first podcast episode. My God, my first podcast episode was garbage. My 10th podcast episode was garbage. I think my 50th was like barely listenable. So, so, so now it's like, it's like you're, you're trying to do the dance and you're becoming a better dancer. And every time you get a random dancing partner and most often you get a bad dancing partner, not in the sense that they're not the prettiest or not the most desirable. They just haven't danced before. So, so that's uh, that's the challenge with, uh, with interviews. And that's how also the, uh, the deconstructor of fun podcast is a little bit more focused on, on, on certain type type of content with same people like you and I, we record a podcast about books just because if we keep on recording about books and it's all, it's, it's just us, we can keep on improving and kind of gel better and have a more fruitful conversation than if, I'd constantly change the people mm -hmm. who I talk about books. With. Yeah. And that's also give me actually more context as well, why you thought of starting this particular podcast about books and give me some uh, food for thoughts as well in developing the relationship or the dance in a way, you know, with the same partners in, in this podcast yeah. and why you have a Twig channel, like the podcast where you, <laughs> we see as well, like the chemistry as well with people. But uh, actually it's a good point as well on different form of content you can do with podcasts. It's a platform for expression. There's so many ways of creating content. And I think that's the beauty of it. Yes. Also one burning question for me, because knowing you a little bit and you are really everywhere, I would say I've seen you in conferences, especially during the pandemic, where I even wonder like, how could it be very well on a podcast or having his tweak conversation or here and also leading your studio. <laughs> so what's your routine? How do you organize your life around that? And where are your priorities? Because it, from the outside, it looks like you're everywhere, but I'm pretty sure I believe that you are structured about how you spend your time. And yeah. uh, can you share more about it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's funny, like sometimes you see me in two places at the same time. But of course, these are <laughs> yes. recordings. So, some, so I might record something that comes out two months later. And, and through that, I might have uh, like for this year, I didn't record pretty much anything for five weeks. I didn't have a five week break, but people, you know, it was still content coming in. People just said like, there's less, there's a little bit less content I've noticed. Like, yeah, because I haven't been recording for five weeks and just it's just the backlog that I'm kind of clearing out. So so there are certain spurts of time that I record a lot and then uh, and then kind of. Uh, drip it one by one. How do I have times? How do I do priority? So I don't have time. That's that's important to to understand. Uh, I <laughs> I don't have more hours in a day than than anybody else. I I have an immigrant mentality, if you will. I work way too much all the time, and um and that's uh, that's problematic. Mm -hmm. My wife had told me about it multiple times that I need that I need help, 
Uh, and I try to work less, but this is what I do. And, and sometimes I record late to the night or I write late in the night because I just want to, I want to get a thought out or I want to have an important conversation. When it comes to structuring days, I'm a big fan of, of this sort of a blocking out stuff. So I, I put in, in, in my day, like I block out times for work for a specific task. So it just doesn't go to, to, you know, doing multiple things. And then one of the important things that you know, you have to do if you, if you take too much responsibilities is you have to, you know, I've worked six days a week for as long as I remember. So I work one extra day. I don't watch TV. So if you ask me anything about Netflix, I have no clue. I know my, my, my family watches it, but I can hardly use it. Um, (laughs) I don't play PC games. I love PC games. I love console games. I don't play them. They're not my business. At least most of them are not. And you know, it's just a sacrifice that not a sacrifice. It's just uh, it's a trade off that you have to do. And then finally, um, sometimes I do get bogged down that I have too much work, and and luckily I can negotiate with my with my family where they go out for a day. You know, they go to grandparents, and then I get like a, a silent twenty four hour block, and then I just cram it in, get it done, and now I'm on top of things. So it's not ideal. I work way too much. I don't. I can't say that I would recommend this to anybody. And you can say it's stupid, but it's just my mentality. I do have a follow-up question on the a word that spoke to me. You said about uh, talked about this immigrant mentality. So I wanted to ask if there's a background to this, mm-hmm. and also this philosophy of life. Actually, it's a way of living, of working really hard, hustling and hustling. If you know, what is it about, you know, like moment of self-reflection that if you stop doing this, what could happen? You know, like, why is it so important for you that you live by working that much and so hard? Uh, I, so it's not that I have an immigrant mentality. I am an immigrant. I'm not even an immigrant. I'm a refugee. So we came to Finland where Mm -hmm. we had nothing and, um, you know, my parents had their education, but I've been very poor. Uh, I've lived in a family that was on a welfare. Uh, our hobby was to deliver newspaper as a family just to earn some, some, you know, some extra money. Uh, I remember all these things. I remember picking up berries and selling them, uh, you know, just to, to make extra money. So I take work really seriously because I've been working since, since, a, since a, a little child. And yes, I take it too seriously, but I call it immigrant mentality because I've noticed that a lot of other immigrants do this, the same thing. That's, that's how we're wired. It's like people who have starved, they have a totally different relationship towards food. So I have a totally different relationship towards work. And also in one part, like, especially living in, in, in Finland, like back in the days, there, there wasn't that many different people. Like I'm not, I'm not born a Finn. So I was always a different and my name is different. It's not a Finnish name. Um, it was very hard for me to get a job. Like I had to make a job because it's so much easier to hire somebody who's, who's a Finn just to take him on an interview because they didn't, you know, people are not sure if you speak Finnish and I understand that. And they're like, okay, so you have, you know, 15 people and one of them has a weird name. Who are you going to interview? If you won't need one person to do an easy job, mm-hmm. of course you're going to interview somebody who's a Finn and you don't have too much time to think about it. So, so, uh, through that, it was like very difficult for me to get a job. Like I had to do always more applications. I always had to call up and, and kind of like, you know, show up, call up and kind of stand out to get a job. So 
and it still kind of haunts me. Like every time I have a job, I always have at least two jobs. And every time I have a job, I take too many jobs and I take it too seriously and I work too hard. And that's really, I think, due to my childhood. What you're describing, I can relate to this as well. I mean, myself, a family of immigrants, I know very well what you're describing. But mm -hmm. I think it's important as well. Thanks for sharing, uh, by the way, very openly, uh, this drive that we say. Never told this to anybody, by the way. Never, ever told this to anybody. I don't, I don't think any of my colleagues yeah. ever knew this. Because I don't, want, like, I don't want it to be defining of me. So I hope your podcast doesn't get too much listeners so that people don't know it. <laughs> I don't think the point here is to know that it defines you, but there's always an origin of what creates our drive. Mm -hmm. Being aware about it, it doesn't mean that, uh, you know, we accept it mm -hmm. by default, but we understand and, you know, we embrace it, we accept it or we reject it. Um, but I can definitely observe from the outside that you have this drive, you know, of performing, working hard. And it's it's not, I would say like in everyone. So there's always an origin of things. And I was more curious about it. That's why I asked. It's a fear of being poor. Mm -hmm. That's a, it's a horrible drive. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. For what is worth, it allows as well to create great things and, you know, things that matter and mm -hmm. uh, allow as well to create other opportunities like Deconstructor often has managed to do. So something to be proud of for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I hope, hope it helps people. It does from uh, my network. I can, I can say <laughs> <laughs> and here, let's go more as well in your recent um, work with the Savage uh, Games Studio. So we were together mm -hmm. at Rovio and let's not get into the times we were there together. You know, we, we know what has happened, maybe the things that uh, the different rights we have, because I think we left not about the same time, but with the same observation where we had our desire to go on our own way. So mm -hmm. I wanted to hear more from you. What was the... Um, yeah, the, the thinking that happened when you were still at Rovio, trying to make something out of a battle studio, and then came to the conclusion like, okay, this is it. I am going to build my own studio. Just go for it. What was the transition? What happened? Yeah, yeah. So it was a it was a tremendous learning experience to to take over that studio. So Battle Studio is like a Rovio's mid-core studio that is based out of out of um out of their HQ, and. My approach of taking it over, like I've, I've mulled this over so many times, it was, it, so let's take a step back. Like before that, I ran a studio for FunPlus and the main learnings from that one was that we had tremendous drive. We had an excellent team. We could execute really fast, but I didn't really understand the market. And I approached in a way of like, let's make a game that we're all excited about. And let's have a good team that can that works really well together, that shares the same culture, and the success will come. And we had a very good team that most of us had worked together, and if not together, then at least in the same company. So our culture was very much a counterculture to that big corporation. And we were making something that we were excited, like the playables were there, and then we were playing our own game, and, and everything was going according to the books. But I really didn't understand the market. And once we came in, like I didn't have pay any attention towards marketing, marketability, product positioning, audiences, none of that. I was just about making a cool game, just super indie approach. 
and the game, you know, it couldn't scale out of out of um, out of soft launch, and that kind of led to me to this whole like the people refer to the taxonomy bubbles and and stuff like that. That's all because of the failure that I had. I was like, man, I need to understand this market way better. So let me group it together into these bubbles and see what bubbles are like, you know, where you can go and so forth. And then a lot of the content that you can now see on Deconstructor Fun is very marketing heavy because I learned that without it, you're flying blind and you will crash no matter how fun your little game is. So that led me to kind of in Battle Studio, like I was very much focused on the market and I forgot the first step, which is you had got to have, you know, teams that work really well together that have a strong culture that are excited about what they're doing. And my positioning for the studio, like I, I made a, I made a big mistake in the sense of the, the studio had made one shooter and it was unsuccessful, you know, but the uh, kind of going back to it, we should have just doubled down on the shooter genre and continued to build on that uh, versus mm -hmm. chasing all kinds of different genres and kind of like opening the book up for for everything. So that was that was like a key failure as a, as a lead to not understand how incredibly important it is to to build on on previous success and failures instead of instead of going to to the uh, to the new areas. That's why I talk about genre mastery all the time and, and like the focus and being in one. It doesn't matter whether you fail or succeed, just build on top of your previous experiences. Mm -hmm. This and, and what led to Savage was it was really forming a company mm -hmm. around a certain type of a culture uh, and a certain type of genre, of course. And the culture that I was that I was very longing for is the one where you have people who have, you know, tremendous drive towards what they're doing. Uh, who are independent, who push forward, who who make it happen, who come in, work energized and and willing to, you know, rock the day. Um, and unfortunately, like at any larger corporation that is top led, that goes away. People are kind of, you know, plotting their way. They're just working. They come in at 10 a.m., they grab their coffee, they do the daily, they go for a lunch, you know, they do this, they do that, they chit chat, there's a retro, there's a postmortem, mm. there's this, there's that. And they go home and they don't, couldn't care less. They don't play with their reference games. Not talking about everybody, but this is where big companies kind of end up when they take too much ownership from the team. So for me, it was just kind of going back to square one and trying to figure out what is the correct type of a culture, as long as correct um, mm. positioning for a company to create something sustainable uh, and something, you know, tangible and something formidable mm -hmm. okay what about the name savage games how did you come up with this name what's the story it's it's just a, it's it's how you it's how we you know describe uh, an individual so so if if somebody does like some so you know certain things really really well call them a savage he or her doesn't matter it doesn't mean a barbarian it's like, oh uh -huh. my God, she's an absolute savage. Like, you know, whether it's a marketing campaign or whether it's a string of code or whether it's a design or whether it's a, mm -hmm. you name it. it it's just, uh, it's it's that. And and the whole kind of Savage Game Studios is, is built on the foundation that we want to have all the studios just filled with, with people who are savage, who are these individuals that can push forward when the whole, the rest of the team gets stuck and that's how you get great results is is individuals coming through at certain points of, of the development and live operations and um yeah that's savage game studio so it's it's game teams filled with savages okay that's uh, interesting because the meaning you describe like the semantic how, how what it means to you 
has changed my perception because uh-huh. for me, a savage, I have I haven't used much this word in my uh, personal vocabulary. I think of a savage, you know, like a oh, you're a savage, yeah. you know, like not a. So I was wondering, is it probably it's not that? <laughs> but then I want to ask you, like, what you had in mind when you actually it's... named it this way? Yeah, so I, I can I can read. There's a there's a this. He's not an author, but he is nowadays an author. His, his name is called David Goggins. He's like this um, ex-Marine. He's a very inspirational mm. uh, speaker. His his books are, I mean, his his one book that he's written is just fantastic, really, really raw. But he describes Savage as like, I can read his excerpt. It's like, Savage is neither a male or a female nor a barbarian. It's an acquired mindset. You can't wake up Savage. You can't just make the decision to become one. It comes from years of refusing to be mediocre. A savage doesn't need a spark to light the fire. They don't need to smell blood in the water. They don't need to arrive their best self. They just bring it always and regardless of all extenuating circumstances. So that's, I think that that really kind of underlies what we mean by a savage really well. Couldn't write it better. And, and that's, that's, that's really, it's, it's a mindset. That's amazing. That's an amazing definition. Is it some somewhere as well in your company culture? That's you would do it. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's it's on the, our career page. Like before you see the jobs, you read this, and if you're like, okay, do you refuse to be mediocre? It's not you know about pumping your chest and <laughs> and then you know <laughs> wearing shirtless sleeveless, whatever you mean. It's it, does, it has nothing to do with you with how you look. It's it's how you think. Yeah, it's a mindset, as you said, and well, basically how I read it is having a certain drive for excellence, you know, like they're yeah, not going for average, but really yeah. uh, like having the drive for great. And I understand then the kind of individuals you look for exactly. then in your company. Uh, then let's switch off a bit further as well into that. Uh, we talked a bit about some of your values in work and uh, life. I mean, work is one of your core values. I mean, like working hard. and uh, But what other key values are yours and <laughs> how do they reflect yeah. in the company you build, because as you know, you are as a leader of the culture you you build in your company, and yeah, how does it reflect in your company culture? Yeah, the, the, I, I remember you said these questions, and this was the first time that I had to think about my values, not the company mm-hmm. values, but my values, and 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 how that you know how that comes through. So yes, as you mentioned, like on top of my values is definitely work. That's that's something that I've been taught since since a little child. Secondly, oh my God, I sound so conservative. Uh, family is really important for me. <laughs> so mm-hmm. so kind of like that goes above everything. And I know that it doesn't come above everything all the time. But then I kind of have to reset if I'm not spending enough time with family and kind of really think like what is truly the most important part uh, and important element in my life and it's family. And then and then I just start canceling calendars <laughs> calendar invites so so everybody who gets canceled from a podcast it's not because of you it's because of my family so i need to reprioritize and then thirdly i'm big on fairness like i don't know if if there's there's different words of fairness like meritocracy and 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 so forth like i'm 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 very much into everybody having equal Mm -hmm. opportunity to do the work and that everybody gets judged fairly like there's nobody you know above because of their heritage or or any kind of a points like like I want to be fair with my kids uh, I want to be fair with mm-hmm. everybody and um even when I meet anybody it's it's always starts from the point of like they are best at what they do until I'm proving otherwise and um and I I you know fairness is really important and that 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 sort of fairness/transparency also comes through the way I run savage 
Uh, it's I, I try to be in almost every way possible, extremely fair and extremely transparent. Mm -hmm. And so these values, then how did they, oh, I don't know if they let you create your company values, but then can you yeah, describe a bit further mm -hmm. your company values and how they correlate in some way with your personal values? Yeah. So they, they don't correlate directly through mine mm -hmm. because again, company is more than myself. Like it's not an of extension so. of me. Mm -hmm. It's, it's other people. So Uh, the company values are really based on company mission because the way I see values, it's it's uh, you have a mission and that's something that, that you're working towards. And values is really explaining how do you work to achieve what you're working for, and that's how the values have been have been mm -hmm. built in our company. So we're very clear of what is our mission. Like we want to be a top shooter developer and publisher, well, developer first in in the world, uh, having multiple studios that you can branch out and and take our core and make that shooter game, whatever you want to put on top of it, whether it's a PVP, PVE, like you come up with it, whatever, however creative you want. But we've figured out the core and now you can branch out and make multiple different shooters in multiple different locations with just your creativity and sort of a savage culture. Now, the way we work is first and foremost, it's all about getting it done. So we try, we define everything by the... Uh, by the effort that impacts the game. So when we go through probation periods, which are very important for us, for example, we do, we do a couple of questions. Of course, the keeper test is, is the, the main question for us, meaning that would you fight if this person would be mm -hmm. offered another job? Would you, you know, would you try to counter that offer? That's an important place for a hiring lead. And the second question that we also have is like, what would the build look like without this person? If you'd say, well, not really much, then then it kind of takes away those intangibles. I could say like, oh, she's so fun or he's so great with the with this and that. Like the, the, that's taken all away. What's happening with the software? Because that's in the end, the result from the company. So, so kind of like asking those questions and that goes to get it done part. Everything has to be work towards the build. Mm -hmm. Secondly, our values is, is being very much a player first. And I know that every single company has it. Uh, for us, it means being very data informed. We use tools like Geek Lab, uh, like 12 Trades and all kinds of player research, whatever we can get our hands on. We're, we're very, very data informed. Uh, play test cloud testing, like we test, test, test. And that's that's something inherent uh, in, in the way the company is set up from, from the beginning. And we want to keep, uh, keep that element in because we have a lot of people from AAA working in our company and we're kind of combination of free to play and AAA. And they don't have this approach. So we, we have this, this strong free-to-play, test-everything approach um, that is in the core value. And finally, uh, something, that, something that, you know, well, our previous employers might have had challenges with is that not everybody played. So in our company, we have set times to play reference games. Um, It's not that you have to play shooters at home. No, we have times during the day and we our Fridays are about playing our own game. It's about playing our competitors' titles. We have our playtest every single Friday. Every single Friday, we make a new build. Every single Friday, we go through what has been added to the build. We play together. We put some feedback and it improves incrementally. But that really leads to that everybody plays. Whether you're an office manager or a back-end lead, you're playing games with us. And, and that's, that's super important because we are a gaming studio. And um, yeah, those are the three values. So everybody needs to get it done. We approach things in a player-first, data-informed mentality, and we make sure that everybody plays because there's allocated time in the day for you to play games. 
Yeah, and they are very explicit. Uh, you seem to have clarity on them, and I think that's the key as well to be able to, of course, communicate it to the people yeah. who <laughs> work with you. I think we have talked about it through a previous conversation and podcast about the importance of the first clarity and communication. And one point I wanted to follow up on, you mentioned briefly about it. Like, uh, I think it's interesting, this framework of question you ask uh, when uh, you check somebody uh, after the probation period, do we keep this person or not? And I saw, I think it was last week, a post that also made me reflect. I think you know what I'm talking about, about um, exit interviews that you had to conduct yourself. I wanted to hear more about it. Uh, what's your process around it? Of course, without getting too much detail, that's not the point. Yeah, what were the challenges or the things you learned by yeah, doing these exit interviews? How has it worked for you? Yeah, so um, when a person exits the company, it's always the fault of the company. So there's there might be multiple different reasons. Whether, whether you're letting that person go or that person decides to leave, it's always your fault. And the fault might be that you've hired this person and now you have to let them go. Or you hired this person and now the person decides to leave. So, so something was off with your hiring. Something was off with your onboarding. Something was off uh, the way uh, they were tasked. Something was off the way they were mentored and managed. So exit interviews, as I wrote, is the, uh, it's the 360 for a CEO. And one of the things that, that I t you know, want to probe in is like, how is our culture working? How are our values working versus how they're written, how I explain them? compared to the reality and that leads to self-reflection in many ways because because something is not working and i understand that exit interview is very non-objective view you know sometimes the person is leaving because they couldn't perform quite the way you know the company expected but nevertheless some something led for them to fail because they were perceived that they could succeed in their in the hiring process so i don't know i'm kind of walking around the bush here uh, it's it's a difficult part. It's a difficult part, and I try to keep it as open as possible. Every exit, we, you know, I do personally my best to get that person hired in another company as soon as possible. And we've had incredible track record there. Like I worked even harder to get that person a new job than I was trying to get that person in. So, so because I mean, it's it's the least that you can do uh, when you're parting ways with somebody. So, um, yeah, I try to be extremely fair. And um, I listen and we take a lot of notes. We discuss those things and then we also implement them. So, you know, in practicalities, I've, for example, changed hiring managers, just taken away people lead positions from, from people who fail to guide their own team. Not that they would get fired or anything, but just clearly, you know, you're not fit to lead. So you're a great individual contributor, but this is not working out. Like people under you are not performing at their mm -hmm. best. So let's let's make those changes. And you really find those things out in exit interviews. It's it's very hard to find out earlier. Mm, yeah. Let's take a few steps back of before what happened the exit interview when you already decided to part ways. Uh, and I say that based on experience where, you know, there's always this a bit limbo situation where, you know, it's not great. It could be better or it can stay this way. And what are the steps for you when you start to see there's a mismatch, a problem. What do you do when it happens mm -hmm. with a person? Uh, how long do you give in between? And what's the process of leads to the decision of parting ways for you when you see already there's something maybe a little off? Yeah, we have regular checkups and, and we have really three tools. One is we end your probation time earlier because we can clearly mm -hmm. see that, that everything is working well. 
our probation time is six months. We've ended, you know, we just ended a few of them and with, with people who've been with us like between, you know, less than two to three months because they were just, they just gelled immediately with the team. You know, people were just saying they're absolute savages and that's it. You're done. Like you wouldn't have to uh, have Mm -hmm. this, this thing above your head of of like, you're still on probation. And plus that allows us to relocate the people to, to the studio if they're not working uh, already in in one of those locations. Uh, The second one is we give feedback and expect, you know, expect the, the person to course correct during the six months, we have marked in calendars uh, the dates for feedback giving. So it's not like we suddenly remember that this person has been here for five and a half months. No, it's it's a regular checkups uh, that we do. And the, the hiring manager, uh, you know, is supposed to do those, those regular checkups and give the feedback and follow through, give clear goals and, and you know, and see how they're going. And final tool is prolonging uh, your, your probation period. So We've used that as well. Sometimes, especially nowadays, like with with the whole lockdowns and stuff like that, like people are not in their best mental state and there might have been certain things happening. Like, you know, if your dog dies, like we're not going (laughs) to judge you based on based on that. So what we might say, if if you have been having issues contributing, then we'll just extend your probation period and kind of say like, hey, you know, we know you were, were suffering. You had a great start. This happened in the between. Let's add some more time on the clock if you want to. And you can prove yourself out during this time. And and usually the people say yes. Nobody has said no, but they understand that they are on sort of a uh, extra time. And yeah, and I'm trying to trying to make sure because once you make the final hire, like a lot of mm-hmm. Americans who are listening to this, they don't get it. But our legal system is totally different. This is not at will employment. Once you employ somebody, you cannot get that person fired. Like it is impossible. So we have to take our probation period extremely carefully. Uh, otherwise, if you're a little bit unsure of, mm-hmm. of, of the person and you kind of keep them, then you, you kind of sold yourself out a little bit because now at some point you still need to hire a new person. And it will be a whole new problem and you're kind of kicking the can down the road. So, so just be very clear. If the person is not working, don't close the position. Just continue looking uh, rather than closing the position end up in a year. Again, opening up a similar position and reorging yourself and, and having somebody who isn't the top contributor in your company and he's just or she's just not a fit. Mm, yeah. Uh, that's good. So these tools, I think, are uh, very important to make it uh, clear on both sides that either it's going well or it's not, and what is what are the expectation, and let's follow up. You know, I think this is why it's so painful this process because when it comes as a surprise, and it shouldn't come as a surprise, mm-hmm. this is the worst, I would say, experience on both sides because nobody <laughs> uh, will be happy from from it, unfortunately. Yeah. So let's uh, switch a bit like topic here about uh, another one that I've been bringing on the podcast often, and uh, you've talked about it. You did also a few episodes, I remember, about diversity and inclusion. But I want to know more from you, Mishka, where do you place yourself about mm-hmm. this and not, you know, as an interviewer where you have a guest, <laughs> but uh, how, yeah, what's your philosophy about it? How are you approaching it personally and as a company? Yeah, this is, this is a very difficult question. Not a lot of people want to kind of tackle it. Um, what's my philosophy? I believe in, in diversity of mind. So the more diverse your company is in thinking, the better results you can get. Because there's a different type of diversities. And while I appreciate that, you know, 
everybody would look different and and have different form. They know, you know what I mean. That's not necessarily a big diversion. Like I've worked in U.S. where people are of different ethnicities, but the thinking is very very homogeneous. Like it doesn't matter whether your ancestors are from Asia, whether they're from Middle East, or whether they're from Africa, whether they're from Europe. If you've gone through the same schools and you worked and you lived in the same cities. You might look different, but you're really the same. <laughs> like mm-hmm. I, I'm sorry, like you know. So, so I think the diversity of mind is super important, uh, and and the way to achieve this in in a gaming company is, in my opinion, like a couple of things. So, hire against the culture. So, you have to make sure that that the ways of working are aligned, and and through that you're able to work together. But the second thing is like I really like to look through diversity of where people have been working before. And it's very easy to kind of hire everybody from the same company. I've done that before. And then it's very easy to build a culture, whether it's the culture that is similar where you worked or an anti-culture where you worked at. But then you lose the diversity and you become very single-minded. And through that, very vulnerable Mm -hmm. company because you're not, you know, you're not criticizing what you're doing. So... So that's uh, that's that's a sort of an important part about the diversity and and yes, I know that there's a there's this whole talk of of like how can we get more women into gaming and I'm a father of two girls and of course I'd love to have more women in gaming. It's it's and we luckily have few female employees, but just going through resumes, there's not a lot of resumes uh, from female candidates, and I think it's very good that the industry have been pushing against sexism that opens up opens up the industry to more female uh, candidates as well as all kinds of different approaches where with whether it's women in gaming or whether it's uh, different kind of coding schools coding for girls and other organizations that are that are kind of opening up these opportunities to women to pursue other than you know quote unquote traditional uh, career paths so yeah that's that's kind of my approach of, of uh, towards uh, diversity and inclusion does it does it make sense? Yeah, yeah. I mean, of course I do. I mean, uh, I have talked about it and uh, that's also what I call cognitive diversity. It, uh, it is in the end about yeah having different perspective um, in a group, uh, in a conversation and that you are not norming too much one direction because then you are not critical anymore yeah. about what you're doing and where you're going. And, and I don't know if, if that's my, only my perception, but sometimes I feel that the companies are too much focused on on how people look and you know like it's it's so stupid to judge book by a cover like you can judge me easily you could say like well he's just a you know a white guy a bro probably played ice hockey probably gone through university probably uh you know all the all the typical things and i would say yes you're right on on every one of those and then at the same time you wouldn't know that i'm a refugee and <laughs> that i have a very different path and a very different mentality a very different ways of thinking because you would mm-hmm. just say you know this is how i look and that's how I'm judged. So, so that's I, I try to, you know, kind of have this mindset where I I don't want to judge anybody by the way how they look, but but how they think. That's the most important part. Yeah, I think what you mentioned, like how they look, it's the first layer, you know, of uh, where it's likely that this person has maybe a different background, education, culture, way of seeing life. Yeah, yeah, true. But that doesn't mean it's true all the time, right? Because uh, like you said, uh, examples, if you have been to the same school with the same uh, peers, then you start to think a bit in the same way as, you know, uh, as, mm-hmm. as a group. And how do you spot that diversity of mind through the hiring process? Or it's, it's quite tricky, right? 
I spot lack of it. I spot I spot lack of it. Like like we've I mean, I'll be honest, like we at Savage, we definitely suffer from uh, lack of diversity mm-hmm. of mind in certain disciplines just because we've hired people who are from different countries who look different but have worked for the same company and at some point and through that that's kind of like the way they are used to work and that really kills the mm-hmm. diversity of mind it's not like hey we used to do it like this and the other guy's like well we used to do it like that oh interesting like what kind of results would that bring but it's more like we've used to do it like this so we're doing like this now because we used to do it like this right now luckily we have a fantastic board and they challenge us of diversity of mind and that you know not that's a diversity issue so we've been challenged on it and and we've definitely took it too hard and are and are tra- trying to diversify more in in every discipline and now let's go a bit back to your position as well of um, as a, the ceo of a company and you know CEO, it's everything and, uh, and, and nothing. In, it's very different uh, based on different uh, companies. So I'm curious of how do you spend your time and focus? What do you do as a CEO? Or what you don't do as well? Or maybe force yourself of not doing? Yeah, that's my favorite question. I want to have more people who are CEOs on my podcast and ask this exact same question. I've definitely fallen into a trap of being a diminisher CEO uh, from the beginning where I would go to where I'm good at, which is the product. And that starts and and my mm-hmm. sort of a diminisher trait, like you've we've read Multiplier. I'm, I'm going through Multipliers. It's a great book. And my de- definitely my sort of a diminisher trait has always been the challenger because I can, you know, walk rounds around a person when it comes to game design and kind of, you know, force them to comply to my uh, approach almost mm-hmm. by just this sort of like a mental jousting. And, um, and yeah, the, the books have definitely helped and, and they've also helped, like, as I've gone through these books that you and Joachim have suggested, it's definitely taking me to a position where I have to think totally differently. Like now I have a different job. I'm not the head of product of this company. I'm CEO. So I need to take care of everybody and I need to take care of the culture. I need to care of the future. Uh, I need to be, you know, creating the strategy for this company, the funding and so forth. Uh, but most importantly, yes, the, the, the culture is the part of it. So my challenges have been falling back to where I'm good at. And I've noticed that a lot of CEOs have done the same mistake and I can spot now right away, whether you're coming from the marketing background or business development background or design background, the CEO suddenly becomes like chief designer or chief marketer of their company uh, instead of being the CEO, instead of, you know, supporting the, his, his or her team. And, um, you know, what has been very helpful is, is sharing by reading the same books and discussing with the leads. So we've all read Multiplier and we can always kind of point our diminisher skills, uh, diminisher, you know, not skills. (laughs) Diminishing is not a skill, but uh, diminishing traits. And because Mm -hmm. we've read those books, we know how to course correct from being a diminisher. So I don't know if that answers. Yeah, yeah, it does. And uh, I will push further the question here, which uh, sometimes I find myself as well, you know, when you have been in your career, building your career on skills that you have, uh, I would say, master, like on product. So my background is product and you are used to being useful in a way to the group by doing mm-hmm. things. Mm-hmm. So now you're in position, uh, as you said, like supporting, uh, enabling, stepping away. And how, and it's a very honest question as well, uh, what I'm happy to share 
if you want to ask me after. But um, how do you find yourself, mm -hmm. like the motivation where what define, has defined you for so long in how you are good and excellent at what you're doing, you're not doing anymore, and you are going in this new territory that mm -hmm. is maybe not yet at the mastery, it's on a serving side, and maybe it doesn't give the same satisfaction, I would say, like in the same way that you have done on product, but still you will find the motivation to carry on. Mm. So how is it going for you? If you understand the question I'm asking here. Yeah, yeah, I understand. So so first of all, it's like you have to build a trust with your team because essentially you're in charge mm. of your team. And if you don't trust them, change them. That's it. It's, it's it's quite simple. So you have to take ownership of your position, not change the whole team, but but change the people. If you don't trust somebody doing your marketing and you always, always want to intervene the way the marketing is done, Firstly, it's your problem, so you need to kind of solve that. But if you still don't trust the way the person approaches marketing, change the marketing manager. Otherwise, it's not going to work. Same same works with with all the other disciplines. The secondly is like satisfaction. Well, it, it that's true because when you do something different, you're like, why am I doing this business development job where I could do tangible, you know, game design job? But then, or why am I doing this HR stuff? Like, why am I, you know, helping to solve problems? That people have in their life and with their career and so forth like why well, i'm not focusing but then you have to understand like is it do you really want to be a ceo because there's the title ceo and there's a role of a ceo and a lot of people want mm -hmm. to be the title have the title of the ceo but don't want to do the work of a ceo so for me what's been important is to understand what is the role of a ceo and then deciding that yes i want to do this I want to be a CEO and I have multiple different reasons why I want to do this uh, that are, you know, just, just multiple reasons. So I've kind of gone through that meditation process of, is it the role that I truly want? And yes, this is the role that I truly want. And yes, I've given away all the other elements. It wasn't easy, but I've been able to let them go. But on the other side, I still have deconstructor fun. So when I feel like it, I can blast out a deconstruction and show that I still got it. Like I can understand product pretty well. <laughs> And that kind of takes my edge off. <laughs> I think that's a, that's a great balance, actually. That's how I found myself doing the podcast as well, where I wanted to get things done, create something, but I'm not going to mess with what I'm trying to build where others are doing it already. So you, you want to be active somehow, but uh, you may put it in the wrong place, especially your own organization. Yeah. So channel the drive in uh, somewhere else where you have more freedom. I think it's a, a very good balance and situation you're in for that. And then one last question, like as you are building your company, um, uh, hopefully soon be more visible about your game uh, you've been working on. What is your definition of success in your life, whether it's company or personal, but, uh, you know, counting all of that? Yeah, I mean, the definition of success, of course, with the gaming company is pretty clear. It's really the valuation of the company and ability to make great games and and have people who love working at your company. like. That that really brings you know that's that's the uh, that's probably the biggest satisfaction now that I now get is when I have a conversation with somebody at our company and they're like you know they tell me that they're super happy I've heard that multiple times and and I kind of relate back that I've not always had people super happy nobody has told me that they're at my studio oh, yeah, I'm super happy to be here and it's it's always some kind of a problem but now you know more and more I'm getting the super happy. Uh, feedback and that's that's kind of like my one of the key KPIs. Then you know everything that goes into setting up a company. It's uh, the success is really determined by by the success of the game. So fingers crossed we're, we're able to to do something successful on that. And definitely the the 
the work continues on that. Um, but success in life is a little bit different than success with your with your company. You know, even though you get the financial success, you might not have a successful life. Sadly, I know people who who have succeeded extremely well financially and are not very happy. And that's why I said in before that family is still number one. Mm -hmm. It doesn't matter how much I love my work, whether it's with Savage or whether it's the uh, burning the candles on both ends and doing some deconstructor fun stuff. I love that. But the real success is to have, you know, kids who uh, <laughs> who know you as a father and, and actually appreciate you. And that doesn't come through money. That, that comes through something else. It comes through spending time with them and playing with them and appreciating who they are and helping them grow. So, so that it's really important to keep that in mind because, you know, whether the company succeeds or fails, uh, you'll still have your family. So... By the way, I'm really happy to uh, be able to have that kind of conversation. I don't think we have the chance to go more in, into that, but I think it shows a different side of you as well, which is not about the hustler and worker and company success, which is, of course, I mean, what uh, many listeners are interested in, but it's not just what defines yeah. one person. So I'm really glad to uh, learn a little more about you on, on that side of your life, you know. Yeah, it's uh, like we all have our personal lives and our professional lives, and they're usually quite far from each other so but uh, i think uh, this is i truly believe in uh, showing a little more i mean there's more and and too much but we are not just this professional figure mm -hmm. that because we are human at the end of the day and there are things that are important yeah. to us and i uh, i don't think they're are exclusive and actually it's more integrated and I, that's what I'm advocating for as well. Like there's the image of what we sell, but there's the, what's happening in the heart. I, I feel I reached a little more of what's happening in your heart today of this conversation, which is great. <laughs> yeah, that's that's good. This is a good podcast. I mean, you you, you ask good questions. And uh, let's close then this conversation as well today with uh, what I ask also most of my guests towards uh, a bright future. So my first question is, what are the next uh, big steps for your studio and uh, how can we help? So yeah, the next big steps is is we are definitely starting a lot of, like we've been testing, but now we're doing a lot of external testing. So it's, we, we have laid out this, you know, multi-step process of, of very, very long soft launch because with big games, you have a lot of steps you have to jump over. So so we're going one step at a time, you know, from the core to the core loop, to the tech, to the retention, to the monetization. And every step takes some amount of time. You never know. You know only when you've reached the exit criteria for that step. So it's a, it's a, it's a long process, but definitely at some point hoping to get people familiar with us playing more of our game. Because for now, it's just people who are not familiar with us, like testers playing the game. And that's a little bit of a different story, but we have to kind of go through it. Um what are the other big steps for our studio so we are hiring we're really hiring heavily because not not that we we have that many positions open but it's it's not that easy to find savages <laughs> we have a very acquired taste and especially since we're working in unreal and not unity uh hiring developers have been a little bit more challenging than we originally thought and most of the unreal developers are still working on AAA, and for them Mobile is mm, curiosity, but not the, uh, the coolest thing. So it's more like, how can we get our company on top of mind? And um, also one of the reasons why I've been talking more about myself and kind of the company is to just get a little bit of more top of the funnel for uh, applicants, if you will. So 
Yeah, I know very well this strategy. <laughs> I went through it. Yeah. <laughs> but you have to go out there exactly to talk more about what you're doing. Yeah, there's a reason why I post on LinkedIn uh, those, those uh, like Friday updates that I, at the end of the day, and, um, you know, kind of opening up. I know, I know what you're doing, but it's great because then people have a more access to what you are valuing, what uh, this company yeah. is about. And, you know, in the end, uh, I think the workforce motivation has changed quite a lot, especially yeah. with pandemic, more self-reflection. You don't join just a company for the game they're making. You join a culture, an environment, the people are there. So it matters. And the more visibility you give, the more, I would say, reasons to join for the long term uh, an organization. Yeah. So on all channels, but yeah, you have to do that as a, as a CEO or as a studio lead or as in any hiring lead, you have to kind of leverage your network. And it's not only by looking at your LinkedIn context, but you can, you know, you can talk about yourself a little bit more just to get mm -hmm. the, uh, the traction. And second question, who inspired you highly in your journey, uh, personal or professional? Uh, I, I had, a, like, this is so weird. It's like out of all the books that I've read, you know, the biographies, this is crazy, but I'm, I'm very inspired by like Schwarzenegger, maybe because he's a, He's like a very hard worker, very structured, uh, an immigrant, uh, a dreamer, and uh, kind of doing a lot mm -hmm. of things at the same time. And, um, you know, on all different facets of, of, of life. Um, so I, I'm definitely like that's I wouldn't say he's like my idol, but I definitely respect and I can't relate. I wish I could relate. But if I could relate to somebody, if I could choose to relate to somebody, it would be somebody like Schwarzenegger. And not because of his big biceps, though that is a huge bonus, uh, but, but just like his whole life story. Mm -hmm. And, and if, if people have read Total Recall, that's a, it's a pretty amazing, like it's, it's hard to believe that that is true. Like this really happened. And, and it is true because we know this person, we know what he did. And, and even, you know, if, if certain words would change in the, in the middle and he didn't say really that or so. But the fact is, all the things that in that book are underlined have actually happened. And it's, it's kind of crazy to, you know, to read through this insane story of a person, of a, of a guy in his leather shorts in somewhere, Austria, <laughs> ending up in, you know, being a, a bodybuilder <laughs> in California and then an action movie star and, a, and a, you know, a construction mogul and you name it and like doing really great in business and becoming an actor and and then a governess is just like, what? <laughs> like, what is this? Like, nobody would believe it if you would write this. This would be the most bullshit story you could write. Yeah. It, would be, it would be too bad for a movie. People are like, that, that doesn't make any sense. Oh, oh, he was a bodybuilder and then he became a construction mogul. So he's like a businessman and super jack. Yes, right. Okay, cool. Yeah, a very interesting story. <laughs> yeah, he has an amazing uh, life and career and uh, very yeah. inspiring. So. It's a yeah, and, and all his sort of like mantras is like, you know, sleep faster. <laughs> like like wow. you have so many hours in a day and like you do this, you do that, you do this, you do that. It's like you have time. You just have to make time. You have to be just committed. And, and the same way I like, you know, I follow Rock on Instagram. Now it's like I only follow men who are like very, very built. Uh, true. <laughs> uh, but, <laughs> but it is like I like this sort of, I mean, Kevin Hart is a similar one. I like their sort of a mentality where they are hustling. Like they are always working on the next project and they are always, you know, posting images with their family and they're having the family time. But at the same time, it's like always like get to work, do this, you know, make it happen, put it in, in your calendar. And that is motivating for me personally. And, um, and yeah, and I, I, when I wake up early in the morning, 
I kind of used that as a fuel. I was like, okay, let's go. Let's train now before everybody wakes up and like, let's get this out of the way so we can do the next thing and so forth. And, and when I stray, because I'm not perfect, you know, when I, when I'm lazy, when I, you know, scroll my Instagram feed (laughs) (laughs) and do some watch YouTube videos or some other bullshit. And then I'm kind of like reminded in my Instagram feed with, with, you know, rock or, mm-hmm. or Kevin Hart or somebody else who's like the hardest worker in the room. And then I close my Instagram. I'm like, okay, let's go. So that's a great uh, habit building. You describe like where you're starting to lose yourself and uh, get, you know, mm-hmm. procrastinate, but then you have something calling you back to what you should be doing. So it's like a, actually a good trick uh, following your yeah. inspirational, like <laughs> people. And then they will remind you in some way through what you're yeah. like, where you're starting to go off the rail. Yeah, with with the Instagram, my favorite app. That's where I go off the rail. That's mm-hmm. and now that they added the reels, I'm like, why am I watching people dance? Like this makes no sense. And plus, they're dancing to the exact same song. <laughs> and last question for our talk today: If you had one thing you wish to change right now in the industry, what would it be? Well, pretty simple. I would change the whole privacy debacle. <laughs> I think I think that that causes like the most stress right now is the uh the the unknowns with the marketing and if i would have a magic wand i would of course change that now yeah yeah that, that would be it i think a lot of companies are suffering through it and i'm um, figuring out what can happen and i think it's going to cause a lot of problems to these companies now i don't know if it's a universally a good thing not to track people on ios devices or a bad mm-hmm. thing i'm just talking from an industry perspective as somebody who makes games and and spends a lot of money in marketing them that is uh, a very scary change that apple made and it can have a significant effect on the mobile gaming industry i mean it had made for sure a lot of waves i mean it's a conversation of many companies including also our own but what i find interesting about it is it reshuffles a bit the rules of the game and you know to get everybody to stay sharp and uh, again the most adaptable will continue and follow but it's you know yeah that's a, that's a positive take on it that's a positive take on it and then there's then there's a lot of companies that are smaller than voodoo uh, who don't yeah. have the resources to figure this out and and they're gonna drown yeah but that is uh, gonna be a challenge to see how much that is true and it affects uh, in reality yeah, because even Zynga was posting something that they're going to lose, you know, 100 million in revenue in the next quarter. I think that was that was it. Like they're something related 100 million <laughs> due to the IDFA changes. So the the changes are quite significant and dramatic. Yeah, and yes, it will lead to something new. It has already led to the fact that that people are looking at as, at Android as their you know first device uh, to launch. It has been um, pushing probably a lot of companies to look at cross platform. It has it has pushed companies to look outside mobile it has pushed companies to look at nfts and the crypto kind of like figuring out other ways so you're absolutely right it opens up new opportunities by closing the the doors from before but nevertheless change is painful so if i would have a magic wand i would not want to change (laughs) got it well okay Uh, mishka that's it for today thanks a lot for um, thank you coming to my podcast this time and with open heart and open mind sharing what you've shared today see you soon in another podcast discussion i guess the books that we will talk about soon (laughs) yes yeah well we'll talk about multipliers and that is one of the most fascinating books that i've read in addition to no rules rules the netflix book so uh, i'm i'm eager to chat with you and joachim about 
about multipliers in the book club. So looking forward to that. Yeah, then let's talk soon then. Thanks a lot, Tom. Bye. Thank you. Bye. Thanks for listening to this new episode of Raise and Play podcast. If you enjoyed the content and want to support what we're doing, rate and review the podcast, spread the word about it. If you'd like to contribute to the change too, reach out to me on LinkedIn for a collaboration. You'll find all the rest of the content on riseandplay.io, including my free masterclass on conscious leadership. Until the next time, 